You know, Tracy taught me how to hold pain in the streets of Ferguson. You know, how to hold that pain of being so uncomfortable every day because of the color of your skin. We were forged in fire, and that care was forged by showing up in Ferguson. I mean, that meant calling each other all times of night and then getting out of the bed and then going to the, to the jails to try to get young people out. I met her heart before I met her theology or her political stance or her, it was the heart. Welcome to Friends for Life from Auburn Seminary, a podcast for friends who give us life and with whom we are in it for life. My name is Mackie Alston. I am a documentary filmmaker, a spiritual activist, and a lover of Lisa Anderson. (laughs) My name is Lisa Anderson, and I'm a lover of Mackie Alston, as well as a black queer theologian who believes that loving blackness is the spiritual calling of our time. I also believe that the lived experience of all black people is a sacred wisdom text. Lisa and I are new at this game of podcasts and we need your help. Our goal really is to be in relationship with y'all. So reach out to us as we try reaching out to y'all. This is our third episode. And this time we had the pleasure of sitting down with the Reverend Tracy Blackman. Mackie and I have known Tracy for more than a decade. She is the Associate General Minister of Justice and Local Church Ministries for the United Church of Christ. She's the Senior Pastor of Christ the Church, United Church of Christ in Florissant, Missouri. Uh, Folks got to know her really well during the uprisings in um, Ferguson after the killing of Mike Brown. She was on the front lines when there weren't a lot of clergy um, doing that work. And so she bridged the gap between the young folks and the traditional church people. You know, the thing about this show is that we reach out to somebody we know we've got to talk to, and then we say, who do we not know who we need to know? And in this case, uh, Reverend Blackman said, you need to know Rabbi Susan Talvey. Uh, Rabbi Susan is the founding rabbi of Central Reform Congregation, the only synagogue located within the city limits of St. Louis. When a whole lot of other congregations were leaving for the suburbs, Rabbi Susan, along with a vibrant and inclusive group, stayed on the front line, uh, fighting racism and poverty that was plaguing the urban center. Today, that congregation is a thriving community of 800 households. Oh, oh, oh. And by the way, listen for two special guest stars on this show. If you wait for it, you will hear the beautiful and brilliant Courtney Weber Hoover, one of our Auburn Seminary colleagues and beloveds. And then at the very end of the show, there's this uh, surprise appearance from Winnie the Pooh, Winnie Self. You got to wait for it. Yes, please, please, please. Don't sleep on Courtney Weber Hoover. We're so glad that she's one of our colleagues at Auburn and she is the host of her own podcast called That Witch Life. It's about living as a contemporary witch in today's culture. There's social justice. There's lots of education. It's fun. It um, makes you feel grounded and whole. I listen to it all the time. You can I listened find- to it this morning. It was awesome. Well, I'm not 
surprise drops every Monday. So in the same place that you can find our podcast, you can find That Witch Life. We love us and Courtney. <laughs> As always, we get our folks started with four grounding questions. They are, who has got your back? Where do you go to feel better? What song is getting you through? And what flavor delights you? And once we've sort of gotten people in their flesh around those questions, we then ask a few deeper questions. What strategic counsel do you have for leaders of faith and moral courage so that we can survive, thrive, and win in 2020 and beyond? We ask, can you tell us a story about when we won in the past so that we can remember that our ancestors have always had our backs, that we've won before, and that we can turn about for liberation today. And the third question we ask is, what is a joy practice that is getting you through these days? Thanks, y'all. Uh, it is just so important to us that we're in it together in these crazy, crazy times. We want to hear from you about what we're doing, how we're doing, and how we can help. So email us at friends at auburnseminary.org and tell us how to make it better. Tracy, Susan, whoever wants to answer first, who's got your back? <laughs> imagining this moment that we're living in, um, imagining where we are right now, um, imagining this world of dual pandemics, who's got your back? Who'd ever like to start? You want to go first, Susan? Um, I can. I, I think, uh, you know, in that language, the language of who's got your back, uh, my go-to is always Tracy because we have had that opportunity so many times, <laughs> you know, um, in the movement, on the streets, but also personally, uh, I have to say, you know, I have, of course, we, we both have family and, and we have good friends, but um, the person that I can be most honest with uh, is Tracy. And uh, that's a really important thing for me right now. Um, when I, you know, as clergy, you often have to put on, act as if, you know, we act as if a lot, we have to act as if, because it's important to model for people, you know, you do a funeral, or you do a wedding, you do some counseling, you want to, you do a service, you want to be uplifting for people, but who, who can you be really honest with at this time when it's really frightening? Um, I, my, one of my, Really, my go-to person is, is Tracy in many ways uh, because I trust her. And I know she's not going to tell me that my feelings are not, you know, okay. Um, she pushes me. It's not that she doesn't challenge me to get up out of myself. <laughs> but um, I totally, I trust her with my life. And I, I hope she feels that way. I, I think we've had enough opportunities um, as our relationship has deepened, to to really have that be tested many times. So uh, I know she gets my back, and I'm happy to be a back for her <laughs> anytime. 
you know. Oh, How did y'all meet? How did y'all meet? Mm. We have different versions of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> we do. We do. Susan, um, Susan Talvey is somewhat of an icon. Um, she is, um, I'm talking about her as though she's not here, but I want to say that she is a phenomenal rabbi and community leader in St. Louis. And so long before she knew me, I knew her. Uh, in every progressive move of this city, Susan Talvey has been involved. Um, I first heard of Susan Talvey when uh, there was a program, I think it's still going on, uh, where you pay a dollar to help with the heating, heating <laughs> costs for people who couldn't afford their heat in the winter. Um, and Susan was the face of that for a long time uh, in this community to help people who couldn't afford heat, to have heat. Um, when the, the debates started about marriage equality, Susan was the first clergy person in St. Louis to do gay marriages. Um, and she didn't do them in St. Louis because you couldn't do them here. So she would ride the bus to, uh, to Iowa. Was it Iowa? Mm-hmm. All the way to Iowa. She'd take buses of people to be married, right? Um, When these sisters felt a call to ministry and they were Catholic, um, sisters not as in nuns, but as women, um, they were Catholic, but they felt called to preach. It was Susan who had ordination services at the synagogue, um, which which she has not recovered from. (laughs) But she's always at the cutting edge. And so long before I met you, Susan, I was a fan. And she won't remember this, but the very first time I met you, we were at St. John's UCC. And I'm not sure why we were there. I don't know what was going on, but um, she also is the rabbi who comes to all the Christian services and actually knows what is supposed to happen during the Christian services. Um, And even doing... um, uh, Passover. She has a, a Passover that's a liberation Passover that's um, with the um, the Hebrew Israelites. Israelites with the Hebrew Israelites mm-hmm. at the synagogue. It's just very progressive. Uh, only synagogue that stayed in the city as everyone moved to the county. Just a lot of things. Um, but we were at St. John's, and it was time to pass the peace. And if you know anything about Christian services, and you pass the peace, and um, and I wanted to meet Susan Talvey, so I went up to her to pass the peace, but I got nervous, and the only thing I knew to say was, the peace of Jesus be with you. (laughs) 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 And she kind of looked at me like, what kind of nutcase are you? (laughs) And she walked away. I don't think I've ever told you that. That was the first time. uh, I screwed that up. (laughs) Um, uh, and then, you know, when Michael Brown died, um, of course, the person I described to you showed up in, in Ferguson, and uh, we really bonded there, and we, we became very close. I'm not sure why. I think we just have kindred spirits, um, and there's a line in the book that um, Katiadu Diallo wrote, My Heart is Across This Ocean, Katiadu 
Katyadu Diallo is Amadou Diallo's mother, of course. And she mm-hmm. wrote a book after Amadou Diallo was killed that um, told his story, but also told his story from uh, what I consider an African perspective. His story didn't begin with him, but it began with her. And, and she told her, her story and then his story. And the opening line of that book is, I've been given away many times. I, I recognize and resonate with that statement. But as you were asking that question, I was listening to Susan. That statement came to mind from a different place. I would say, uh, I've, I've been rescued several times. Um, and Susan has been a partner with me in rescue in many, many ways. We rescued one another lots of times. Um, And so that's how we met. That's how I met her. And then we met in Ferguson, um, in the streets of Ferguson. Yeah. You know, Tracy taught me how to hold pain in the streets of Ferguson. You know, how to hold that pain of being so uncomfortable every day because of the color of your skin. I mean, these are things you know, you think you know in your head, but loving somebody this deeply um, and loving her family and loving her children Tracy let me into that that place of um, of pain, and and I could go there because of that trust, you know, Tracy. Because you know, you talk about things that I did that were courageous and got me into trouble. Oh my God, just just standing with me got you <laughs> into trouble. <laughs> I mean, the things that, that Tracy's done be, because I've, you know, been on the wrong side of the, the line for a moment or perceived to be, and Tracy wouldn't let people do that to her friend. Um, you know, I think we, we you know, I, the image I have is, um, you know, standing in the breach together. We, we have stood in that breach together. We have stood, you know, there's this beautiful poem by Miriam Ruckheiser that says, I'm not crossing the sea until everybody crosses with me, until all the lands will sing to each other. And, and sometimes I, I, that's where I, I, feel, I, I feel us standing together in the sea, you know, up to here sometimes. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally, we've been treading water a couple of times. Yeah. But, make it. <laughs> yeah. but I, yeah. Y'all are clergy. Mm-hmm. So you get to stand in the presence of the holy and sacred in relationships, I imagine, a lot. You marry people. You bury people. But there's something really beautiful and sacred about just hearing that testimony between you two friends. And I think that the the soulmate or the kindred spirit or the one who has your back, 
one of the desires, even in this radio show or podcast, is that we lift that particular formation, love formation up and celebrate it because we need it. Mm-hmm. Just all the time, beginning to end of life. And uh, we need it in movement. And there's there are lessons in it, I believe, that we need to listen to as we can really do each other in, mm-hmm. in our movement spaces or in our houses of worship, right? Mm-hmm. Or in our relationships and in our friendships. But I just thank you for sharing and for showing up like this because it makes me have faith. And it also makes me want to go be with my best friends right away. <laughs> and I love doing this with Lisa because she's, she's one of them. And yeah. tell them I love them. And, yeah. and to give the, the, those critical relationships their honor and due. Absolutely. So our, our, our second question is, and it's a weird one in COVID, so I invite you to answer however you wish, whether your response is an imaginary place or a place you can't get to right now or a place that you're actually going to now where our, during with, in this time when our movement is relatively limited. The question is, where do you go to feel better? Where do you go to feel better? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I have to admit this because I'm not a Facebook person, but my friend Tracy is. And sometimes when I need a lift, I look at her Facebook page. <laughs> oh, my God. I love that. <laughs> She's sometimes that's like, what she's cooking. Um, I don't know. I, so I, I, I feel like, Oh my God, I feel like I've been spying, but she actually took time and went to a spa last week. I read. Yes. I <laughs> oh remember God, that. Embarrassed, but <laughs> back in a couple of weeks, you want to go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes is the answer to that question. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> sometimes. That's where I go because I can't go anywhere. If I want to see my my two grandsons that are they're four and eight months, my kids have really strict rules about where I can be, and I'm allowed to do certain funerals, certain weddings, but I'm not allowed to go inside anywhere, you know. And um, <laughs> so I go to Tracy's Facebook page. I didn't realize I was doing that until you asked the question. <laughs> um, it's uplifting. I agree with you, Susan. I know exactly what you're talking about. Confessions of a woman who preaches. Um, yes. The Sunday dinners. Um, yes. You know, <laughs> and the, I'm watching this on television. Did you see that? Yes. Tracy's yes. page is a refuge. <laughs> and also her rage and her, you know, her rage at things and how angry she gets. I, you know, I, I can get angry with her. <laughs> You know, where do I go for comfort? That's a weird question. Um, You know, I find comfort in when all things are well with the people I love. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case right now. Mm 
<laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, comfort is yeah. hard because I go to places that provide respite, like the spa. There's this place in Jamaica that I booked for a week that I love and I just can't get there right now. But as soon as I can, I'll go there for a week. But many people that I love are struggling right now um, for different reasons. They're not all COVID-related. And it's hard to be joyful when people you care about are hurting. I, I wanted to say something else that I think is very unique uh, and a place of comfort for me about my relationship with you, Susan, um, somehow magically, Susan and I have found a way to genuinely love and care for one another without requiring the other person to be anyone but who they are. So she doesn't have to be less Jewish, and I don't have to be less Christian. Right. And, you know, and she's a vegetarian and I eat anything that moves. <laughs> you, know? Um, and, you know, we don't see eye to eye on Palestine all the time. We don't mm-hmm. see eye to eye on Israel all the time. Um, and we don't see eye to eye on scripture all the time. <laughs> and we don't require, I don't require her and she doesn't require me. Um, to be anybody but who we are. And we've decided that that's enough. And I don't think we ever had that conversation. I think it just happened that that's enough. You know, she did trick me. We started having Torah study. We're supposed to study scripture. We started (laughs) in 2015 uh, because we would be out in the streets of Ferguson and we'd talk in scripture. Mm -hmm. And I say, this reminds me of this story and she'd go, yeah, yeah. And I'd get to the end and she'd go, that's not how that story is. <laughs> and then she'd say, oh, this reminds me of this story in the Bible. I'm going, like, Susan, that's not in the text. So we decided we studied together. And, you know, we we're going to study one, you know, we we're going to study some Torah. Then we study um, Bible. Then we study Torah. Then we study Bible. Um, and we've had some breaks, I'll admit that, but it is now 2020 and we are still in the Torah. So I don't know what's going on. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Something went wrong. Uh, but I think that's very important in this moment. I've been doing webinars with people. Um, and I did one yesterday with Rob Shank that I met at Auburn. Yeah. Um, and I put him in conversation with John Dorhauer because I'd heard both of their stories and there were similarities there, even though one's evangelical Susan and one is progressive. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we lost, we collectively have lost our ability to let people be <laughs> and mm-hmm. to, to fully love people just as they are. That doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciate that about, our relationship. We have some intense conversations, but we've decided that um, we would let one another be. I think, I wish we had more of that right now. Mm. 
right? <laughs> that you didn't have to agree with a person right. to hear them or to, to listen them. to them or to love them. I, I, that's missing. It's missing for so in so many areas of our lives that it's, it's scary to me. What do you think inspired that in your relationship, that ability to let each other be? I mean, is this, uh, have you noticed that that capacity has changed over time in our culture that people have been able to allow each other to be? Is there a practice inside of your relationship that, that allows you to hold on to this is my friend Susan and she is being Susan. This is my friend Tracy and she is being Tracy and we love each other inside of our being. Is there something that you practice that helps you get there and stay there? I don't, I don't think intentionally we do. I, I believe that we were, I think it's how we were forged together. We were forged in fire, right? Yes, Ferguson yeah. was erupting, yes. and there were, contrary to popular belief, there were maybe a dozen to 15, closer to a dozen, ministers who committed to that, right, to being out there in the streets. And um, so I met her heart before I met her theology or her political stance or her it was the heart right and knowing you had someone who had your back and I and I I believe the same is true of me and then as we got to know each other and began having difficult conversations or conversations that became difficult um I was always able to I'll let you answer for you Susan I was always able to say this is a person that I know genuinely cares about me yeah. I let that, that's my anchor, right? If I believe that you genuinely care, I can hear anything you have to say. Yeah. And, and that care was forged <clears throat> by showing up in Ferguson. I mean, that meant calling each other all times of night and then getting out of the bed. It meant going to, to the jails to try to get young people out. It meant um, standing together when young people didn't think you should be there anyway, it meant all of that. We did that together as we got to know each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about <clears throat> the fact that we actually stood on the outside together and had to make our way in, you know, with, especially with those young protesters that we fell in love with. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but that was a common ground. And, you know, the the thing I would add to what you said about that deep respect for who the other is, um, well, there's two things. One, nobody listens better than you, Reverend Tracy Blackman. You listen with questions. And I have, I've learned I, I try to learn from you that I don't listen with my own answers. You know, you, you do that so beautifully. You li- really listen to another person's heart by, by, pull, by, by drawing them out. And, and that's a tremendous gift to the person you're in relationship with. It's a tremendous gift for me. 
And um, then the other thing I, I want to say is I, I, I do feel um, completely respected as a Jew, even though I know that we, it's complicated. You know, our theologies are complicated. But I will also say that in my relationship with you, something new has arisen. I, f- I feel like there's something new that's born, too. It's almost like a new tapestry is woven, you know, in, in understanding, you know, we've talked about this, in understanding, um, you know, your relationship with, with Black Jesus. I get it. I mean, you've helped me really get it, you know. Um, as a feminist, I had trouble, you know, I was a church history major in undergraduate school, and, you know, I tried to learn well, a lot. I didn't know that. Oh, my God, that's a long story. But anyway, I was, because, yeah, that's a funny story. But but I was, but I never really got, um, you know, and we've talked about this, how we share the story of the Exodus, right? That is That is our story together. And yet it's a little embarrassing as Jews because our slavery was like a really long time ago, <laughs> you know, and it's different from saying, you know, we're still in the legacy of, of, of the, the slave trade, you know, here. But uh, we, we both relate, I think, to that story. It's our story, it's, you know, but, but when I hear it from you, it, it becomes something new, something richer, actually, something deeper. Um, and, and that's, that's so, so yes, I am authentically who I am, but I'm different. I'm also different for knowing you. I'm better. That's me as well. I mean, not only have we become friends, but our congregations are friends. Mm. Does that make sense? <laughs> Each other. We were just laughing. I was telling her that, um, you know, for a while, every Sunday, there were people from the synagogue at my church and they were trying to figure out why we were friends you know how could we be how could we be so close and they would come and they would tell me we just want to see what our rabbi sees in you you know oh. uh, and I think that it was when Adina was sick, was sick right when Adina was sick mm-hmm. Adina um is this fiery spirit <laughs> of creativity and passion um, and just the embodiment of resilience, um, which would be more than a podcast by itself, (laughs) and who lived a lot of life in a few years. Um, And um, when you are a minister uh, of any kind, whose job it is to care for others and to take people through grief. There are not many places that you can go to be accompanied because everyone expects you to do the accompanying. There are not many places you can just... um, So we've been that for each other. And... um, during Adina's illness, there were some people who would say that that's Susan's rabbi, and they'd be talking about me, right? That's um, right. And, and she really is my rabbi. Leon goes, don't mess up with Susan. When they kick us out of the church, that's our next stop. So, <laughs> 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 I love that. I love um, that. You know, so they would come. They come um, to 
to see yeah. what is this thing. And um, can I tell them the story about Adina's funeral? Yeah. Yeah. Where was I when Adina died? I was out of the country. Where oh, was yeah. I? Mm, I was you were the country. And you were on your way to um, California to be with Harry Belafonte because her funeral was on the Monday of the Dr. King holiday. I was going to to California, but I was somewhere else. And I was going, I was headed to California to be with, um, with Mr. Belafonte and Adina died. And, um, and I knew that, you know, Adina's celebration of life would, be before Harry Belafonte's time. And Susan called and told me that Adina had died. And I said, you know, I'm going to get a plane. I'll be there tomorrow. She didn't ask me to. But on the call, she says to me, I want you to sing at Adina's funeral. And anybody that knows me knows that I'm real Jesus-y. So I started panicking like, I can't. I can't mess this up. I can't say the wrong thing at the funeral. And I knew it would be crowded. I knew it would be packed and it was all of that. And I never told you this. Like I didn't get any sleep because I was trying to think what funeral song that I know that was not Jesus-y, right? Every song I could think of. And I was afraid that I sing those songs so much that it would be Jesus-y and I didn't know it anymore. I couldn't, you know, I was worried. So I picked this Bette Midler song. What's the name of that song? Wind um, Beneath My Wings. I'm channeling Adina right now. That's <laughs> 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 a song that I know. But I listened to it like for the, the next 24 hours and I go, okay, I'm going to sing this song. I'm going to sing this song. So when I get to the airport in St. Louis, I call Susan. Oh, and I sent her a message and said, I found this song. I'm going to sing Wind Beneath My Wings. She didn't respond at all. I said, that's odd. She didn't respond at all. So when I get to St. Louis, I call her at the airport while I'm waiting on my luggage. I say, I'm here. What do you need? And she said, about that song. (laughs) And I said, what? She said, Adina hated that song. (laughs) I hated it. So then I had to tell her, I said, well, Susan, every song I know is Jesus-y, and I didn't want to sing a Jesus song, so I came up with this song, and she says, I want you to sing Amazing Grace. Yeah. And I said, but that's a Jesus-y song. She said, not for me, it isn't. Mm. So I said, okay, and... um and I get to, to Dana's funeral at the synagogue, and it's packed, just like I thought it would be. And it's being streamed all over the world. People are watching it in Israel. And I recognize that I'm the only person singing at Dana's funeral. Mm. And that there are only a few people who were allowed to even speak at her funeral. And I recognized what a deep honor it was. Um, What a deep honor. And I'd had the privilege of of walking with 
her as a mother and still walking with her. Because if you've ever lost anybody, you know that it's almost like the world just pauses and takes a deep breath and then and then it goes on. And it doesn't go on, it will never go on the same way if you've loved that person. Right? So this is, this is a journey that we will always have as long as we live. As long as we live. It's so powerful that we come into this space where you're talking about the music and the time that you sang this song, um, Amazing Grace at Adina's Funeral, because, you know, our next our question that we like to ask folks is what song gets you through? Um, and I know that changes with the seasons. But um, if you're a musical folk, and it sounds like you both are, I mean, I can see you in synagogue. I've been to many synagogues, many churches, and it is the music that moves our people. Um, but is there a particular sound, song, something that's getting you through in this moment? Hmm. You know, I, I need to add, though, I mean, it, Tracy honored us by singing at Adina's funeral. You have to know, Adina loved Tracy and did not allow any rabbis any uh, anybody else into her room, but she she let Tracy in when she was really sick. And I'm not sure Tracy remembers, but because it was so spontaneous and so perfect. But at the end of Amazing Grace, you added "Swing Low" to bring her home. shock we didn't expect her you know to go and in that music in that moment um you know we just kind of put together this very simple thing that we thought Adina would like and, and Tracy's music was and Tracy's voice and Tracy's taking it from amazing grace to coming home was perfect in that moment and still carries me it still carries me, it still carries me. Um, you know, the music of, of my daughter, she left a playlist, <laughs> so I still listen to that. And it's, uh, it's comforting, it's comforting. And I, I wish I could say it's the music of the synagogue. And, and there is music of the synagogue that, that I know, especially as we get ready for the high holidays, which are in less than a month now. Um, um, I, I know that music will 
challenge me to dare to believe it's going to be a better year. But truly, if I would say, if I would have to pick one thing that would connect me to hope and to healing, it would be Tracy singing at my daughter's funeral. There are many songs, Lisa. Um, right now I'm stuck there because I relive that moment. Someone asked me that question two days ago, and it was Jill Scott living my life like it's golden. Oh, yes. Um, you know, it's a different song every day. It depends on the mood of the day. All three of my children are with me and healthy. Um, but my son, my oldest son, got into trouble. He, um, he was driving with some friends. He had been drinking. They had all been drinking, but they weren't all driving. He was driving, and he hit a guardrail, and a, a young woman who was in his convertible with him was thrown from the car. And just by the grace of God, she was not killed. Um, she she was ejected from the car onto the highway, and she stood up after that, but then a van hit her because she was in the middle of the highway. Um, she fractured many bones, and my son was afraid um, because he had been drinking, and he, he there were some other people in the car, and so they stayed with her, and he said he wasn't going to stay because he didn't want to go to jail. He was a, a black male who was afraid. And, um, but I'm grateful to say that um, he, he left, but they said that he turned around and came back and said he could not leave until you know she was in an ambulance. And the ambulance got there before the police. He waited till she got in the ambulance, but he did leave, and he was running um, and I was traveling on the road, and that mother found me on the road and began yelling at me about how horrible my son was, and he had never done anything like this. I didn't recognize what she was talking about and came to find out it was true. Um, and he was hiding. He was hiding with his dad. We were not together. And I said to him, you have to turn yourself in. And I didn't know what that was going to mean for him as a black male. And I certainly didn't know what it was going to mean for him as the son of an outspoken person in the streets of Ferguson at that time. Um, but I knew that he had to turn himself in. This woman had convinced me that everyone was looking for him. That wasn't true, but she was speaking out of the trauma of her child, right? Her child being hit. And I certainly get that. And I would have been right there if it was her, if I were her. Um, and so um, I told him he had to turn himself in and said, I'm scared. I said, yeah, but, you know, we got to do this and, um, and I'll be with you. And I did not have a plan at all. And my first call was to Susan. What am I going to do? I know my first call, I tried to call a couple of attorneys and for the kind of case that I knew this was going to be and the kind of attorney I needed, I needed tens of thousands of dollars for a retainer, and I didn't have it. And so I was, I was panicking. I was panicking. And I called Susan because I knew that Susan would be with me 
Um, it wasn't, I wasn't calling her to ask for tens of thousands of dollars, but I needed somebody that could be with me and could think with me because I didn't know what I was going to do. And Susan said, just stay by the phone. I wasn't even home yet. Um, she said, just stay by the phone. Let me make a call. And she called um, someone who uh, is a friend of hers, who is an attorney, who is that kind of attorney. And he took my son's case. And he dealt with, I mean, my son was an adult. So he dealt with my son. He didn't deal with me. And I told him, I said, you know, I know how much this is. And if it takes me the rest of my life, I'll pay you back. I just need my son to be okay. And he took that case. He said, because he's an adult, tell your son to bring me a dollar. He walked him through turning himself in. He walked through the entire case with him. He, um, he worked on my son's case like, like I had all the money that you would pay for a case like that. And my son, um, he, he was guilty and he had to plead guilty, but he received a suspended sentence. And that sentence um, is over now. And I mean, he never did a day in jail, right? Um, well, he did when he turned himself in, but he never did time in jail. Um, he had to suspend his sentence. And if he stayed out of trouble for five years, which he he hasn't ever been in trouble before, and he hasn't been in trouble since. And his record has been expunged. Um, and, and now he is working on a government contract. You know what I'm saying? And when I went to um, this attorney and said, I meant what I said, I will pay you. I just don't have it up front. He said to me, your payment to me is being a friend to my rabbi. Wow. Mm. And as long as you are good to my rabbi, you don't owe me anything. And so when I say we've rescued each other, mm -hmm. that's one example. Mm. Right? Because my son is a 29-year-old black man in St. Louis, Missouri. This particular son has locks all the way down his back. And I am convinced he would be locked up today. Because leaving the scene of an accident is a felony. And he would not have had a second chance. Mm had it not been for my relationship with Susan. Mm. So, the song uh, by Sweet Honey in the Rock, mm. Will You Harbor Me, came to my mind when you were telling that story. I don't know if you know that song. I know that song. But... 
It's like this idea, this notion of harboring, of being a harbor for each other. That's just what came to my mind when you were speaking. So I have one more little question before we move to another part of the conversation. Most of all, I want to say thank you. Thank you for being this generous with us. I know we just happen to be in a room while y'all love on each other, but it's, I'll never forget it. And it's transformative to be in the presence of your love and admiration. And I know that that's a circle that includes your children and others. And so thanks for letting us into the circle. So this is a little gift, right? It's, I'm going to ask you only to answer in a couple words and to taste it. What flavor? Because, and, and we need some joy, y'all. We need some deliciousness in our lives because we're living in hard times and we have lived through hard times and there are hard times to come. So... If you were to cut yourself a slice of something, (laughs) if you were to serve yourself up something that, generally speaking, except in just the very worst of times, never fails to make you just feel a little bit better, what would that flavor be? What flavor delights you? Lemon sorbet. That sounds good. Can I, I, I have to answer with a couple of more words than that, because another one of the things that happened through our friendship was we did go to Israel and Palestine together. We were three rabbis and three ministers, and we had some really difficult days, really difficult days. But at night, so um, at, after these very difficult days, and it was hot, we went at the wrong time because we had to squish it into each other's uh, schedules. We went during Ramadan. Oh, my God. We, we couldn't have picked a crazier time to go on this trip. But, so every day was, was really challenging and really hard in, in many ways, physically, emotionally, spiritually. But at night, as tired as we were, we would sit around most nights and drink a glass of wine. And oh my God, it never tasted so good <laughs> with that conversation, you know. As hard as those days were to be able to be with each other at night, you know, and to kind of decompress and just affirm our how we were deepening on this very difficult journey in this friendship um, was delicious. It was delicious. He drinks the kind of a sweet thing that I'm not sure about. It's kind of sweet, this Prosecco stuff. I don't know, a little sweet for me, but (laughs) I would drink that too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Well, um, so the election is coming up, we hope. Um, but I mean, that's sort of the substance of the question. The next question that I have to ask, 
Um, so when we originally formed this, we had the, the idea that, of course, there's an election coming up. Um, and so what do we have to offer to our communities? What are we teaching? What are we thinking about? What is leading us to um, how we understand what it means to win in 2020? Um, everything feels so precarious. Um, but where are you now? Um, I mean, we're in the middle of the Democratic National Convention. Um, historic things have happened since even our last podcast with the um, nomination of the naming of Kamala Harris. Um, so you think about the election coming up in 2020. What do you have to speak into that um, from your perspective as a faith leader, as a movement leaders, as organizers um, in this moment of the DNC and as you think about, you know, what does winning mean for us now? And let me add one piece to that question. Mostly the folks who are listening to this podcast are people we've worked with before or people like them, uh, justice-minded faith leaders or spiritual uh, activists and organizers, and they're worn out. We're worn out. And we're looking to know where to show up and how to show up. And some of us have an ounce of creativity left in us, but a lot of us just want to know where to show up and how. So if you have any inclination as to how and what we might do, and what we might tell our people to do, just as y'all have congregations. Both aspects of that question are helpful to me. Um, to be honest with you, I'm not spending a lot of time um, thinking about the election. I'm spending more of my time thinking about after the election. <laughs> mm. um, whatever that may be. Right. For me, prophets abound, but priests are scarce. And as a person of faith, there is no win in this for me, unless I can do my part to help mend the brokenness that is the result of not just the last four years, but is the result of at least the last 12 years, when this country had to come face to face with its buried racism that was sparked with the election of Barack Obama and that mm -hmm. festered in a way that took us to 2016 uh, and that we still have not dealt with, but have been forced to confront more fully because of the narcissistic person that's in power now. So I don't suffer under, you know, certainly I am advocating for a change in administration. I'm not saying I'm not there, but as 
a priest in the, in the broader sense of that word. I'm really trying to prepare myself to help shift a narrative from one of war language to one of reasoning language. And what is it going to take for people to act civilly and humanely with one another once again and for there to be room to affirm the dignity and humanity of every human being, whether you understand them or not, and to allow people to speak their minds and speak their hearts without fear. That is the work of the priest. How do we build places of safety and comfort uh, so that people can put down their weapons. And mm-hmm. as, as, as my ancestors would say, study war no more. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like there are enough prophetic voices in this moment, in pulpits and in the public square. And many of them are jockeying for that moment. But there aren't a lot of people who are talking about the repair that is going to be needed in this country no matter who wins (laughs) and how are we going to get there and how are we going to model for people um, a world where difference is an asset and not a burden. Um, And that's where I'm choosing to focus my energy. I get mad. I do. I say things about this administration, but I want to be clear. I always think that whoever is in, in the, in the palace is the emperor. And it doesn't really matter (laughs) that much for me. It does because of the narcissism of this. But I'm always going to be challenging that. What's different for me in this moment is that we are in a country that is intolerant of anybody and anything that is not like them. And we can't live this way. You know, we can't. It's not like progressives can win and throw away all the evangelicals. (laughs) And it's not like evangelicals can win and throw away all the progressives. It's not like white people can do this work without black and brown people because they never have. And it's not like black and brown people can do all this work without white people. So how are we going to get back to a place where we can disagree? Um, It, you know, maybe we've never been to that place that I'm reaching for, but but we were closer than we have been right now, right? Yeah. And what are we going to do with, with the madness? And that is going to be the role of the priest. And I mean the priest in, in orchestrated faith, and I mean the priest in a spiritual realm, and I mean the self-selected priesthood of believers, whatever that belief is. How are we going to get through this? Because we have been completely torn to shreds. And that's where I want to spend my energy. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of the hard conversations that we have to have inside the church and inside the synagogue and inside the temple and in in the public square. And how are we going to send messages that reaffirm? Um, I suggested this to the Biden campaign. They didn't listen to me, right? I said, I don't need another commercial about what you're going to do about this. I want to know what are you going to do to heal this country? (laughs) Right. And give me a campaign that gives me a vision 
of what it looks like for you to, to begin the healing process of this country. I feel like we'll have a different outcome for the election, but even if we don't, my task does not change. The, the, the task has to be repairing the breach, and the breach is wide mm-hmm. and deep. And, and we've, you know, we, we, never, we never had a completely healed country, and now it's in splinters. That's scary. It's, pow- it's powerful to me that in your answer and your response that you've challenged what is the often the dominant paradigm, which is the prophetic paradigm, as the one that will actually take us to the place um, of repair and healing. I just know that uh, to really be able to cultivate spaces where that priestly role in its broadest ways lifted up is very, um, it, it feels very bright right now mm-hmm. for a lot of leaders that I know um, who are outside of traditional religious spaces who are talking about the role of healers for this moment and, and seeing that as critical in a way that, again, is outside of the dominant paradigm and, and speaks to your um, your, uh, what you just said about offering that as something for the Biden campaign that folks didn't pick up on, but it, it is moving in a countercultural way. Um, that is, it reminds me of the whole space that we're in of, it is not the charismatic one anymore, but it's a community that is pitched toward healing and repair, which again moves away from that singular voice to what is this collective that we have to become in order to bind these wounds that are so deep and that may have never actually had any context for being able to understand healing because we may have never been there. And and for the priest, and this is going to probably jolt some people, but Winning for the priest would never look like casting out even Donald Trump. Right. Winning for the priest looks like drawing him in to a place that causes him to be different than he is now. And I'm using him for a lot of people, right? For it's not an administration of one, right? Winning for the priest is never about annihilation. It's about transformation. That's not popular. But Reverend Tracy Blackman, that's why you're my rabbi. (laughs) That's why I love you so because nobody is invisible to Tracy. And I think if we could learn from that, you know, when you're a priest, you make me think, and, and that's what we do. You know, we minister to people in, in that role. You can't unless you, unless you really see people because there are no formulas. You know, uh, 
there's no cookie cutter way to do this work. It's all individual because, you know, you have to see people on the streets of Ferguson. That's what got my attention. These beautiful, young, many queer, black, beautiful people saying, see me. You know, see me. I'm not invisible. I'm a mother. I'm a nurse. I'm a teacher. I'm I'm a person. And I think um, that's what you make me think of, Tracy, and this work, this healing work of the priest. And you're right. There's so many prophets out there now. (laughs) Um, Something's bound to stick. They're throwing a lot of stuff out. But if we concentrate on the healing work, maybe we'll have half a chance. You guys should do a podcast on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Made me think about it. There are so mm-hmm. many people whose faces you came to know in Ferguson, young yeah. people in Ferguson mm-hmm. who have grown up, oh. right? And um, they're spectacular. Yes, and I'm like amazed that it is only, I'm not going to say it's only, but I think it's only because of Ferguson that that people saw them and took a chance on on brilliance uncurated, right? So what Ferguson proved is that there there are people who deserve to be places where they might not ever be in the systems we have created. And some of our institutions, like SLU and Wash U, to name the most prominent, uh, where it costs forty and $60,000 a year to go to college, um, there were people in Ferguson who could not afford that. But they made opportunities, identified some of those people, right? And so now Brittany Farrell, who was chanting with a baby on her hip, uh, it is my duty to fight for my freedom is in her PhD program for nursing. And mm-hmm. Alexis um, Alexis Tardy, who always was grabbing the microphone and was going through um, a, a gender um, um, gender identity reconciliation, I'll call it, from her outside to her from his outside to his inside all doing Ferguson and being targeted because of that uh, has now been accepted to law school at Wash U. And Kayla Reed, um, who was pretty quiet in Ferguson, or at least I didn't hear it, could have been my big mouth, um, but she was there (laughs) present all the time. And she's now leading Action St. Louis, which just got the workhouse closed. And these are people who all have Wash U degrees now, which is a super prestigious, uh, you know, institution for them to have graduated from and who may not have ever had a Wash U degree had it not been for someone seeing them in the streets of Ferguson. And that's just to name a few. And all these other things that activists unseating a 20-year generational congressman to go 
to be our representative in Congress with no political background. That is the Ferguson uprising. You you mm. feel me? Like yeah. it's a manifestation of all that we're talking about. And it's not that Ferguson gave them the brilliance. It's that they were brilliant yes. and were limited because of the mindsets of Ferguson's, right? And so what other brilliance is there that's untapped and unseen? It's just amazing to me. It's amazing. There are others, like, you know, Rasheen Aldridge. Um, who is, is now in, in the a representative uh, for us in Jefferson City at the Capitol. It's just, it's amazing. Yeah. You should do a podcast with me. I'm just saying. I mean, is that is that winning? When they, when we, because, you know, our, our next, like, like, our next, like, question was, you know, so many times we don't have, you know, we forget the legacy of the work that we've done, like the impact. Um, we don't tell the story. Mm-hmm. And like, you're telling these stories of these people who, these young people who were seen and who are changing. Like that's the story of Ferguson that people They're don't know. The They're like, bad at telling you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, that I mean, you know, one of the reasons we came up with that question was because um, I remember we were I was listening to the Ben the Ark did their um, their um, conference at the beginning of the um, of the quarantine, and one of their speakers was talking about the fact um, that. Um, that there is so much inside of our legacies and so much inside of our history um, that we forget and that people are often thinking, oh, progressive spaces are dour and progressive spaces are not fun and our movements are not joyous and we don't remember our freedom stories and our freedom struggles. Um, but when you were telling that, those stories and remembering the people and saying here is where they are now, it's like how do we continue to lift that, those stories of that excellence and that stories of what happens when we see each other? Um, up in our movements, like what happens when we do that? Um, so, isn't that amazing, though? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the story. The, you know, a lot of the the people that we've been referring to are millennials. You know, famous millennials and uh, and young. But um, one of the things that we learned from them was they were into this whole thing about self-care, too. Do you remember that, Tracy? I mean, I know they used to use the synagogue, and they'd have these, um, and and really sometimes it would just be for people of color. It would just be for the black protesters. You know, we're going to have a self-care day. Um, Even now during the protests, I've noticed that people are taking self-care days. You know, we never did that. So I don't remember taking a self-care day, you know. And then, you know, like we came up in the 60s, we were supposed to, you know, wear ourselves out. 
chew ourselves ourselves away. But there's this notion of, um, you know, kind of this body, mind, and spirit Mm -hmm. um, appreciation. And self-care as as resilience, right? Yes, as protest. You know, self-care as, yeah, as resistance as well as resilience. And, you know, I forgot, like, um, I forgot to mention KB. Who, KB. <laughs> you remember KB? KB was the, was the drummer of the movement and, and completely, like, transitioned, you know, gender-wise and faith-wise and, is, you know, she was AME <laughs> Um and now he is in rabbinical. <laughs> it's is wild. So yeah. Um, I want to take us to the last question because I like the way you've kind of segued into these stories of care, and I and if our audience could see the smiles, it would give them so much joy. Um, so. What are your joy practices? How are you finding places where you find joy, practice joy um, in these moments? <laughs> you, know, um, you know, I'm a mother who's still deeply grieving my daughter. Um, hard for me to have any joy, I have to admit. I, I'm not saying I'll never get back there. But uh, spending time, you know, uh, with Tracy is joyful because she, she pushes me. She says she, and she was there. She was a witness, you know, so she really talk about Harry and talk oh, about so my grandson just got dropped oh. off. I have a four year old and eight month old grandsons that are, um, my youngest one is named for Adina. His name is George Brooklyn, you know, um, that's joy. That that's, there is joy there for sure in this next generation. And, um, you know, and, and when I have, I do have two other children, and you know, when they're happy, I'm happy. I'm trying to be happy. Um, you know, but I, I do also feel I, I love the way um, Tracy talked about, you know, being a priest. And as much as I'm tired and I'm complaining about it, I, I do have to say that serving. You know, I've, I've done a lot of funerals for people who have lost children since my daughter died. And as horrible as it is, I know that when I can be there for them, it lifts them. It gives them some hope. You know, so joy comes in lots of different packages, I guess. Um, but... Uh, you know, I, you, you do have to make make room for it. You do have to make room for it. And sometimes you have to pretend. You have to act as if. And then you find yourself, you know, smiling again. I say the same. My, my children and my family bring me joy. Uh, my work brings mm-hmm. me joy most of the time, which is a good thing. Um, I haven't lost my ability to laugh at myself. Um, not take yourself too seriously. Um, 
brings me <laughs> brings me joy. Um, <laughs> my time with Susan, and we have a sister circle, so it's mm-hmm. it's six of us, right? Mm-hmm. And and one of us just got. Uh, so we find joy in celebrating one another's accomplishments and uh, one another's children's accomplishments. And uh, one of us just got a house with a pool. And, um, and so we've named it Club Corona. And we get to go there and chill out in the pool. So that gives me joy. Um, and we laugh. Of, we do laugh. We make we each other laugh. smile. There we do. <laughs> All of us are doing incredibly well, and that gives us joy. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots to be joyful about, right? Um, there's lots to be joyful about. I was going to name um, um, Adina's spirit still lives with us and I get joy when um, Susan's house is full of Adina's friends who still come every mm-hmm. year, every like special day <laughs> to, to be with her um, and have taken her poetry and her writings and made books out of them. And that brings joy and, um, you know, sneaking around trying to make sure our daughters are not settling for some bum off the street. That gives us joy. We gotta go like, what do you think of that one? Yeah, we gotta get rid of that one. So it's like, that, that's joyful. You know, there's lots of things, right? There's lots of things. Sometimes we sneak off to Ted Drew's, which is an ice cream place here. Uh, Susan and I go get ice cream, and that brings us joy. Um, Yeah, lots of things. Yeah, I love the ordinary care. What else? What gives us? Oh Lord, have mercy! Okay, you have to go first. Oh well, you know what. Before we got on the phone, Mackie and I were reading, we were drawing tarot cards together. Um, And that was giving us some joy. We were just kind of stopping. And I know it gives me joy. We do this practice of really asking how each other is doing. And, um, and when we're not ready for the real answer, I know Mackie will say, okay, so I will have, I, let me step away and come back and I'll give you the real mm-hmm. answer. And I love that. That brings me joy. Um, New York has opened up a little bit. And sometimes I just go and sit out on the street and watch New York life. And watching New York life, which, you know, so much of it is on the street, you know, people just walking around because I mean, how many times you live here, uh, you spend a lot, you don't spend a lot of time with your people in their house. You usually are meeting people out on the street. And so seeing just folks walking their dogs, 
even in the midst of all this crazy, the variety of masks, mm-hmm. uh, the mask gear, the accessorizing. Um, and I get up every day and I put makeup on my face and that gives me joy. <laughs> you do? I do. I do. I do. It, it, it makes me feel... You got me in a dress, but I still didn't put on a bra. Like, it's not... <laughs> 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 you heard it here on oh, friends I, I i like doing it it's it's fun for me it's fun for me i'll tell you what brings me joy so i've been i'm a documentary filmmaker mm-hmm. and i've been out in oakland shooting we're making a film about reparations practices in the united states right now in regard to the legacy of slavery and the native american genocide and the systems of oppression that have emerged from them and mm-hmm. with which we live and we had an amazing week out in Oakland last week. Uh, uh, but then I had to, because we're coming from California, which has had a spike in cases or a high level of cases, I've had to be in, be in quarantine in my own home. So I kicked my man, my husband, out of my bed, our bed, and he's been sleeping on the couch and bringing me meals to my door. And I've been in our bedroom by myself. Now, I got to say, that was pretty nice. <laughs> To have solitude, like I love solitude. I got a strong introverted side and a lot to do. So you bring my husband can cook, and so the fact that he's bringing delicious food and the kids are crying, but you know what? I'm in quarantine, honey. I'm sorry. I don't know. I trust you. Make and thank you for dinner. That was nice. But last night was the first night we slept together again out of quarantine, mm-hmm. and to feel him. Yeah. Touch gives me joy. And right after absence, sometimes the absence is very long between that kind of touch in our lives. And, uh, but in this morning after experience, Nicholas Gottlieb gives me joy and the way we touch. The other thing that gives me joy as a documentary filmmaker is listening is 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 being witness mm-hmm. to the beauty of life, and I just want to name that listening yeah. to y'all today. This is not just any old podcast, and this is not just any old afternoon. Listening to you all, uh, and even in the sorrow, right? That has given me such joy, which I find. Uh, really grace-filled, that joy can, can come even, that somehow yes, intimacy, intimacy begets joy, even when the intimacy is full of pain. I think, I, I, I don't want to sound cliche, but, you know, thinking about the films you're making and, and the work that you guys are doing and, the, and your relationship, it, it really is giving me joy to see uh, Black Lives Matter. What gives you joy, Courtney? Writing my novel has given me a lot of joy lately. And also my big sloppy puppy um, gives me a lot of joy. And when my husband rubs my head when we watch TV. Um. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, I love I I love you all. <laughs> I love you too, Lisa. Um, there is nothing more holy 
than um, than this moment. That's what I feel. And um, I had no idea, Tracy, but neither one of us did that when we said, Tracy, um, please, just whoever your friend is, um, can you ask whoever they are to come? And when you said my friend Susan Talvey, we had no idea. Um, it's just God. It's just God. We couldn't have created it out of nothing. So we say something, send us, everyone off with this little benediction at the end uh, that ends each of our podcasts. So, so take this in, beloveds. So if ever there is tomorrow when we're not together. There's something you must always remember. You are braver than you believe. Stronger than you seem. And smarter than you think. But the most important thing is is even if we're apart I'll, I'll always, always be with you, with you. We'll always be together <laughs> we'll always be together oh Winnie the Pooh Susan has Winnie the Pooh big stuffed animal oh oh uh, hold on let me take a picture of that. let me take a picture of that. Is that, that, where right the that is the yes. shot of the show oh, we have to take that oh yes 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 let me do that <laughs> yay i got a screenshot too you all, oh, thank you so 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 thank you so much here we go that's our show y'all for show notes, episode graphics, or to donate to our work, or for more information about other Auburn programs, please go to www.auburnseminary.org forward slash friends. Be sure to follow Auburn Seminary if you're feeling it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, we want to hear your thoughts. Email us at friends at auburnseminary.org. As always, it was a joy to be with you, Mackie. I can't wait, though, until we can see each other in the flesh. But even if we're not in the flesh, we are together through this medium, and we're together in this experience. And I look forward to next month. I got to be real. I'm not waiting for next month. I am biking up, and I'm going to see you within the next few days. So... I'll be seeing you. Oh, thanks be to God. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This show was produced by Auburn Seminary, some crazy, beautiful people at Auburn Seminary, and is made possible by a generous grant from the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Foundation, a friend to Auburn for a real long time. Okay. Friends for Life was produced by Mackie and me with additional support from Courtney Weber Hoover. Woohoo! Sharon Groves, David Beasley, and graphics by Emily Simons. They're gorgeous. Audio engineering was from Dan Greenman um, with editing also by Courtney, Mackie, Lisa, and David. Thank y'all. We love you. Come say hi to us. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting on my bike, Lisa. Yay! You don't get a puppy, Mackie. Woo! Oh my gosh, what are you going to call your puppy? We've been working on this for so long. I'm going to call my puppy Ruthie in honor of my mom. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh.
with me. When? Do you know when? Probably the beginning, like around October, the, 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 the sometime early in October, maybe the first or second week. Puppy was just born four days ago. Oh my goodness. What kind of puppy? Um, 